You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. These guys, the Cape Seahorses, off the southern coast of South Africa in three small regions. So we'll talk a lot about that as far as their conservation, why they are so endangered. What can they teach us? Once these fertilized eggs are within the male, a lot of amazing things occur. And this is the part where put your seatbelt on, folks. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. I am excited to go back to the ocean. And cover something we probably should have covered a while back, but seahorses, but specifically the Cape seahorse. It's the rarest seahorse in the world, or it's also called the nice nah. Right, right. <laughs> so it's the nice nah. It's a nice seahorse. It's the nice nah seahorse. Nice nah. Nice nah. Yeah. Nice nah. Nice nah. Yeah. We'll probably stick to Cape Seahorse through a lot yes. of it, but I, I, I do like nice nah. And it's really, it's spelled really fun with K N Y S N A. But it's a seahorse we definitely need to talk about today because not only is it a national treasure of South Africa, but it's really endangered and it's one of only two endangered seahorse species in the world. So we'll be talking all seahorses today because their physiology and their reproduction, of course, is the coolest. <laughs> but we'll focus a lot too on uh, the Nisna or Cape seahorse and what some of the threats are and what's being done for its conservation. So it's going to be a fun episode. In fact, it's for me personally, I just love when we go in the ocean. And although it's sometimes a little out of my comfort zone when we're studying fish species is Chris and I are mammal physiologists. So some of the ichthyology and fish stuff for me personally can always be a little bit more challenging, but fun to the point where I'm like, Ooh, Chris, let's not record tonight. So I can have a few more days to keep studying these guys. Cause they're so cool. And I kept finding study after study after study. And, and of course we don't have time to cover all of it. So I'm in love seahorses. And the photos, oh my gosh, the photos and the videos <laughs> yes. of males giving birth, which we're going to talk a lot. I think I have like 10 slides about that, yeah. that, that fun process there. So you're definitely going to stick around for this podcast because it is going to be filled with lots of fun facts. Uh, it, it's, it, this was just a fun species to learn about and just diving into seahorses. I mean, we did sea dragons. But um, bump, bump, get it? Diving. Yeah, <laughs> diving. I didn't even think about it. You're right. All right. When did we do sea dragons? Can you even guess the episode number on that one? Absolutely not. But just for yeah. fun, uh, yeah. episode one twenty two. You would think. You would think episode fifty. Fifty. Wow. That was like in our first year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Our first. We year, were brave first even year. back then. Good for us. Yeah. Yeah. We did sea dragons and sea dragons mm-hmm. off South Australia. <laughs> And then these these guys, the Cape Seahorses, off the southern coast of South Africa in three small regions. So we'll talk a lot about that as far as their conservation, why they are so endangered. And we have to give a thanks to Skylar, who emailed us this week, right, that, that asked us to cover seahorses, and we scrambled. <laughs> so we're going to push it. We pushed a species back that we're going to do next week. But we thought, yes, we agreed to do seahorses for, you know, many reasons. But yes, Skylar, it was such a great request and perfect timing because here at All Creatures Podcast, we definitely want to celebrate Transgender Awareness Week and, of course, Transgender Day of Remembrance. And the seahorse is just a great way to celebrate Transgender Awareness Week. Uh, Their biology, their behavior goes to show that there's not one, one way to do anything. And so thank you again, Skylar, for this Awesome, awesome request. No, thank you, Skylar. Yeah, it's uh, seahorse dads are definitely, once we get there, you're going to learn that they are one of the most amazing uh, 
parental figures on the planet. I always go back to Cassowary dad too, who, who stuck with the egg looking at it going, well, where's my help? And she runs off. <laughs> I kind of feel that way. And, you know, I just had this big long talk about parenting and I'm still stuck here in New Zealand by myself with my two boys and uh, until Pip gets here. So I, I definitely feel uh, for those dads out there, you know, raising kids on their own, but Anyway, Skylar, thank you so much for the recommendation. So we scrambled and and definitely wanted to cover seahorse. It, just such a fascinating fish, Angie. Describing them, they are so unique. Well, I think we should first go to their name a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the seahorse, there's about 46 species of these small marine fish. And... They're in the genus of Hippocampus, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is ancient Greek, and Hippos means horse, and Campos means sea monster. And I'm not sure where the sea monster part comes from because they're very adorable, <laughs> in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But the horse part is very, very real, the hippo part. Mm-hmm. And this is because seahorses in general kind of look like regular horses because seahorses have a narrow to long snout that leads into their head, of course, and their neck is really long and bends around uh, like a horse's neck would. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very flexible, well-defined neck, just like a horse. And because of the way seahorses swim, which we'll talk a lot about in their unique physiology with that, but having this head in an upright arch position really makes them look like a horse. But that's about where the buck stops after that. <laughs> they're, not, they're not too reminiscent of a horse pretty much past their head and neck. Because from there, they typically have a crown-like spine or horn on their head, which is called a coronet, which is a part of the horse actually on the hoof. But this uh, coronet or, or crown-like um armor is different on each species. And interestingly enough, the Nizna or the Cape seahorse really doesn't have a prominent crown uh, compared to some of the other more common species. But all seahorses, including the Nizna seahorse, does not have scales like a typical fish, right? Because the seahorses are in the bony fish family. Uh, But instead of scales, seahorses have this thin skin that covers over bony plates that are arranged in rings that move throughout their body in segments. And each species of seahorse is going to have a distinct number of ridges or rings that move through their body. And all seahorses have pectoral fins, which are located on the side of their head behind their eyes. Uh, which is makes them look darling in my opinion, but Chris is going to talk a lot more about the physiology with this. And they lack caudal fins. Now, specifically with the Nizna or the Cape Seahorse, their color is going to depend on the environment and the season of the seahorse. But in general, they're going to be uh, light green to yellowish brown in color. And some have dark speckles on them. And they can also be found in a almost purple-black coloration, once again, depending on their environment or the season. And their nose or snout is a little bit shorter than some of the other seahorse species, but in general, it's still long and serves a really important function for when they're feeding, which we'll talk about here too later in the podcast. But in general, the Nizna seahorse is pretty small. Uh, compared to a lot of the other seahorses, uh, as they're only about 12 centimeters in length. Yeah, they're not big. Yeah, they're not big. And then, of course, all seahorses are pretty iconic for the position that they swim in, right? They're in this upright position with that curled neck and then the rings throughout their body and then their tail. That seahorse tail is very well known. It has rings throughout the tail. And this tail is prehensile, which means it'll grab and wrap around things like the monkeys that have a prehensile tail, which comes in handy uh, because they're not the best swimming fish in the world, which we'll talk about when we get to behavior and swimming and other physiology. But 
they're famous for these tails. Mm-hmm. I know, I know. For a fish that has a prehensile tail, it's crazy. It's you know? so unique, and Unlike, so they're just yeah. Uh, they're just a beautiful, beautiful fish. I mean, there's they're no other. Like, and, and we'll get to it too in the physiology. Talk about like like chameleon like too. That they, they, they're just. It's just amazing. They're just an amazing creature that once you really start thinking about them and you really start to understand them, you're amazed. You're amazed at how well they've adapted, how well they're they're found everywhere, which I'm going to cover here in a minute. They're just, yeah, they're amazing fish, Angie. They're just, oh, I love them. I love them. It's been a really fun uh, past couple of days watching all the videos of them and Mm -hmm. beautiful, beautiful fish. Yeah, they are. They are. Now, the Cape seahorses are, are, like I said earlier, found in South Africa, the very southern part in the Indian Ocean. And they're only found in three brackish water estuaries in the Cape province. So if you go all the way to South Africa, the very bottom and right in the middle are these three estuaries. So you have the Kerbooms, the Svartfile estuary, and then the Nizna Lagoon. So because they're only in these three regions, that's why these seahorse horses, this this species of seahorse is so endangered because they're, they're only found in this area of the world and there's a lot of urban development going on there, runoff that has disrupted them. So when we get to conservation towards the end, we'll talk about their population, but yeah, kind of a tough, tough area for them uh, where, where they're, they're trying to survive. Well, yeah, Chris, anything with such a limited range is going to have a lot of pressure on their survivals, especially as the waterscapes change and ebb and flow over time. So it's going to put the species at a greater risk of extinction just because they really are only found in this small area. Uh, however, this area is a very beautiful part of the world. Prepping for each podcast, Chris and I always send notes back to each other because, yes, we are that dorky. (laughs) But Chris was sending me lots of seahorse anatomy and physiology facts, and I think I was just sending him, ooh, we need to go here in South Africa. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because they're called the Nizna or Cape Seahorse because Nizna is this beautiful town in the heart of the garden route. And for those of you that are not familiar with South Africa, you should be, and it's just gorgeous and stunning. But the few times that I've been blessed enough to be in South Africa, I've always wanted to do this tour called the Garden Route, which is this beautiful 300-kilometer stretch uh, on the that runs from the southeastern coast of South Africa all the way to the western Cape border, which extends basically from Cape Town to Port Elizabeth. So a large, vast region of Southern South Africa along the Indian Ocean. And it's a pretty famous path and it's called the Garden Route just because of the ecological diversity of plants and vegetation. Uh, Of course, you'll probably see some amazing animals along the way, uh, but there's tons of these estuaries and lakes on this path. So many, many moons ago, when I was in Cape Town with my bestie, Nani, and her soon-to-be husband, Bob, we wanted to rent a car and, and, and drive this route and stop in the different towns situated along the route. Um, of course, we fell out of time and money and all the things and said we'd get to it someday. Now, <laughs> many years later, I'm, uh. I'm, I'm like, oh my gosh. And so, yeah, so Nizna is situated right there in, in the heart of the garden route. And yes, yeah, so I was sending Chris basically like tour plans and bucket lists and, and uh, not a lot of things about uh, seahorses in particular. Uh, but <laughs> I, I did my research on my own. I just, this is definitely one of the tangents I went on of wanting to, uh, to do this drive and check out all these really cool coastal towns and the topography is just stunning. Mm-hmm. So yes, very, very beautiful 
beautiful part of the world. Yeah, I need to get I need to get down to South or down. I need to get over to South Africa. I keep forgetting. <laughs> like I'm pretty down in the world. Like you I'm are pretty very south. Down. Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm pretty south in New Zealand, but I do want to go dive over in Australia. Not the great, not only the Great Barrier Reef, but off South Australia and see the sea dragons. Now I need to go dive off South Africa and see the Cape Seahorse because they're just beautiful creatures and. Uh, you know, it's just, if anything in this podcast, you know, hopefully we give people places in the world that they want to go see. And like, I want to go see the Amir Falcons in India, you know, when we talked about them and places jumping on our bucket list to see some of these and just incredible, incredible animals. And when you talk about seahorses and just how important they are to an ecosystem, these ones, I mean, just so critical. I mean, they're just, they're all so important to the food web. Oh, yeah. I mean, they help keep the ecosystem and these estuaries that they live in in check. They feed on plankton, krill, small fish. And as much as we may not like it, being a smaller fish themselves, they can also provide food for other larger fish, sea turtles, seabirds, other marine mammals in general. So taking them out of the ecosystem can really disrupt the whole web. So the seahorses' role in the environment that they live in is very important. But they also play a critical role in several stories and mythology and just throughout time as far as our fascination with their biology. The Nisna seahorse is definitely a treasure uh, in this South African region. And, and people are paying attention and really wanting to save them. And that, and that was one of the highlights this week for me, Chris, was finding out that, man, there's actually, there were several studies about the Nisna seahorse and people that care and want to save it. So for me, it was a really hopeful story as well. Um, hopeful for the, our oceans in general, for other bodies of water, such as estuaries. And, and just keep in mind too, that an estuary is an area of brackish water, like Chris mentioned in the podcast, where River, fresh river water is coming to meet ocean, salty ocean water. So it's, it's a pretty unique habitat in that not, not all fish and sea creatures can live in these brackish waters. The Nisenar Cape Seahorse has a really, has a niche that it's very well adapted to. Yeah, there, there is a lot of work going in to save these, these mm-hmm. fish. I mean, there are people recognize they are the most endangered seahorse in the world. And so there, there are a lot of initiatives that we'll talk about later in the podcast trying to save them. And this week, Angie, you know, in my, I guess I'm going to start labeling the conservation news segment because I always go to that part of the world, check in what's going on conservation wise, what's going on to the biome there. And I know anytime we cover the oceans, it's just it just seems like bad news after bad news after bad news. I think the the last species we covered, I was talking about deep sea mining, and you know, we, in the tuna episodes and everything. So this week, I wanted to talk about some of the stuff that is working. And you know, with the bad news, I did want to say we're having these con- conversations, you know, around the world. It's not just this podcast, but. In the news, uh, political circles, uh, people are taking notice and we are building momentum. So what during the weeks we do talk about, well, gosh, last week we were talking about Australia and all the invasive species and how rabbits are destroying the environment there. It, you know, just understand that we, we are bringing this to light and people are talking about it around the world. So that's kind of what I wanted to talk about this week was just basically like, Africa and its oceans and its ocean ecosystem and what is going on there with trying to conserve it. Yes. Well, I learned a new term this week, Chris. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. called ocean sprawl. Okay. And so, yeah, some authors, and I'm not sure if they coined this, but there was an article in Environmental Biology Fishes in January 2018. And the authors we're doing a research uh, study about the Nisna or Cape Seahorse, which I'll talk about here when we dive deeper into their behavior. But the paper opened up with this term called ocean sprawl, which is similar to urban sprawl, right? Mm-hmm, Where mm-hmm. cities are growing out into previously forested or into areas that aren't that inhabited, moving outward. 
Well, ocean spra, they defined as, quote unquote, uh, the proliferation of artificial structures associated with coastal protection, shipping, aquaculture, and other coastal industries. And people are starting to look at the impacts from this ocean sprawl, and it's pretty intense, pretty extensive. And the biggest one is basically loss or alteration, the change of this natural aquatic habitat, whether it's an estuary or um, a mangrove forest or basically anywhere where land meets ocean. And in several real urbanized areas, it's having a huge impact on all the different species and their diversity that that historically inhabited these regions. So ocean sprawl. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a big focus. It's a big Mm -hmm. focus. And it's as you were talking, it made me think of Sammy Safari, who we interviewed a few months back, who was saving sea turtles off Kenya. Remember, I was surprised he was a Whitley Award winner. And I was like, Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of ocean conservation probably going on there. We just, we always, when we think Africa, we're always going straight to the plains, straight to the Congo, you know, thinking of gorillas and elephants and rhinos and, you know, all the chimpanzees, all the animals there when off their coasts are so many unique species like the Nizna seahorse. And there is a lot of ocean conservation going on there. Just this week in Mozambique was the second annual Growing Blue Conference. And what I really caught my my eye with this one was the president of Mozambique is advocating strong political commitments by African governments to marine conservation. And he's really pushing, you know, ocean conservation around Africa because of the 54 countries that make up the African continent, 38 are coastal. They have coasts where they are stakeholders in protecting the oceans and the fisheries and everything there. And to quote him, he said, the protection of humanity is not only an environment issue, or is not only an environmental issue, but also a political one. A strong political commitment must guide this action. So here you have a president of an African country, you know, stating we need the political will to protect our oceans, which is positive news. Then this last month, there was the first ever virtual African Youth Summit. So because of COVID, it wasn't in person. Mm -hmm. So they did it virtually. And this focus this year was our Africa, our ocean, our future. So they had hundreds of intent attendees from Africa and then others outside Africa to bring in some research and stuff. And they were talking specifically of protecting their marine environments. Then coming out of, you know, some of these, it's in the news, you know, the, the, the climate summit, some of these other summits that are going on around the world with all the governments. This was new to me. And it's a coalition of 70 countries, including many of the G7, or including all the G7 wealthy governments. It's it's called the 30 by 30 goal or commitment. And what that is, is governments pledging to conserve at least 30% of their land and oceans by 2030. So right now, what we know, uh, we've brought this up many, many podcasts ago, If we go and look at our wild spaces, there's only about, I think, 23% of it left that has not been exploited by humans. So the wild, quote unquote, the wild, where a lot of these animals we talk about live, on terrestrial land, there's only about 20-something percent of it left. And it's still being developed. Uh, You know, we got to go back to the Amazon. The Amazon's being bulldozed even quicker this year. It's really horrific. So what they're pushing is this 3030 project to protect plants, animals, and ecosystems. And it's supposed to be finalized next year in China when there's another summit. Most countries have signed on to this. So far, only Brazil is the one that has objected to it. And as we know, the Brazilian government, I'm just going to say there's a lot of trouble with, with that government. They, like I, I just said, they're bulldozing the Amazon. 
uh, I, I'm hoping there's some political change there because the Amazon is so critical, obviously, to the the ecosystem in South America. So they're the only country that's objected to it. China is going to sign on to it. I think the U.S., a lot of these other major countries are going to sign on to it. So that is good news. That is something positive where we're getting pushed. And then again, this week, there was another meeting in Tanzania held by the IUCN, who is going around the world pushing this blue economy symposium. They're bringing in experts, IUCNs wanting to work with these governments, local communities to develop sustainable blue economies, keep these fisheries healthy, keep the ocean's ecosystem healthy. So there's a lot going on that we don't see behind the scenes. Uh, there's there's a lot of push for conservation as we keep navigating through this world COVID pandemic. These things are still ongoing. They haven't been on pause. They haven't stopped. We know conservation's taken a hit the last couple of years, but there's still a push and it seems like there's some political will out there to make changes. So to me, that's positive. That's that's good signs where 10 years ago, we weren't having these conversations, right? I mean, that, that's just, if I can go back 10 years where we were, yeah, there was, there was conservation going on obviously around the world, but I didn't feel like there was this much press, this much pressure, this much spotlight on all the issues facing us right now. Well, yeah, Chris, that is good news. And and as I was doing my research this week, that was the feeling that I was getting with the Nisna and the seahorses. There's not only people fighting for the Nisna and the seahorse, but also these waterways in general. They they realize what a important resource it is, and it can't be one or the other. It can't be all for the marine life in the oceans or all for the humans. It has to have this blended blended take on it so both can come out as winners and there's going to be compromise and give and take and and you and I are always pushing for more science to help back these decisions and of course the IUCN and other and other major animal conservation groups are as well but unfortunately there's not always enough money to do the studies or enough time but with the Nisa seahorse I felt that there were some good studies out there in fact one of the ones that I found is taking this idea of, well, we do know that there is this concept of ocean sprawl and regions where basically humans and humans' busy lives meet water. And so how can species live better in this region? And this is where the study came in with the Nisna seahorse. And the title of the article that I mentioned earlier from Environmental Biology of Fishes in January 2008 with Classens et al., was titled, An Endangered Seahorse Selectively Chooses an Artificial Structure. And what researchers were doing is they were in the, the Nisna estuary in South Africa, and they basically created what they called reno mattresses, which were these horizontal wire cages filled with rocks. And they were using these as a new man-made novel habitat for the endangered Nisna seahorse which is great. We've talked about artificial reefs before and on this podcast and we need to do we need to get an expert on here about that. And of course, my interview last summer talking with Dan from Coral Restoration Project about how to grow corals on some of these artificial structures in in the ocean is using amazing technology and kind of combining this thought of, well, if we're taking away some of the landscape or altering it, perhaps we can also give back in maybe a little bit of a different way, which is wonderful. But these scientists took it to the next level to say, well, hey, is the Nisen seahorse going to actually use these? And if so, are they going to use them more than their normal, than their normal seabed habitat? And I'm jumping ahead a little bit because with the prehensile tail, most seahorses like to anchor themselves onto something. They're not a big swimming fish that covers miles and miles every day. They kind of just hang out and hunt for food and just are usually using their tail to grab on to typically some types of seagrass. So the researchers did this extensive study 
comparing the amount of nice and seahorses that were living in a region, a small region uh, within the uh, Nisna estuary and preferring to stay in the seagrass vegetation, the natural vegetation, or these artificial Reno mattresses these uh, that they made. And interestingly enough, the study concluded that more Nisna seahorses were found on these artificial Reno mast- mattress structures. So I thought this was a really positive and impactful study that there all there are alternatives out there, and we can sometimes use artificial structures to help create habitats where seahorses want to live and will do well. So obviously, if we can keep the their home, their estuaries as clean and devoid of man and all of our constructs as possible, that in theory would be great. But in theory, that's not a reality, right? So we have to think outside of the box. And some of that might be by providing some artificial habitat for these seahorses. No, I know. I, I saw some of that that they were doing. It, it's amazing some of the work these scientists and conservationists are, are doing to, to save this particular species that can be used around the world. Now, jumping into evolution, seahorse, it, it, it's pretty fun. It, it's pretty interesting. Uh, looking at their scientific classification, the class that seahorses belong to is Actinoterygii, which I'm probably, I probably butchered that. But anyways, ray-finned fishes, which pretty much every fish we've ever covered is a ray-finned <laughs> fish. Right, yeah. Because 99.9% of the 30,000 species of fish are ray-finned. And that's because the fins are webs of skin supported by bones or rays or the spines. Uh, the other the other, part, other class of fish is Sarctoterygii, the lobed finned fishes. I, I looked into this. The lobe finned fish is like a lung fish and there's only eight species. So <laughs> most uh, of the fish are ray finned or almost all of them are. And 50% of all vertebrates are fish. So plenty to cover for us. Now, the order is Syngathiforms, Syngathiforms, and it's the trumpet fish and seahorses. So you have about 370 species. The family is Syngathidae. So our seahorses, pipefish, and sea dragons, 215 species. Then the genus is Hippocampus, which is seahorses, which is 46 species. And then for us, the Cape Seahorse is the Hippocampus compensis, and they're the only species. There's no subspecies. Now, interestingly, seahorses pretty much live almost on every coast uh, throughout the world in temperate waters, you know, from the equator down here around New Zealand, all the way around Australia, just really where it's devoid. I mean, even there around you, Angie, around Florida, up in California, up to all the way up to Oregon, Washington, I think they're in the lower 48 states. The only place that that seahorses really don't live is on the west coast of South America, in Chile, and a little portion of- It's a little too Chile there for them, I think. Chile, (laughs) yeah. And then the southern portion of South, or the, the- Southwest portion of Africa, but pretty much seahorses are, are, are worldwide Mediterranean, the black sea, you know, even through there. Now evolution of fish, we've covered plenty of fish. I mean, 530 million years ago, the Cambrian explosion, this is when vertebrates started showing up. So the earliest jawless fish uh, started to show up. Seahorses specifically evolved from pipefish. So when you look at a pipefish, you can see the very much, they're very similar. And molecular evidence shows that pipefish and seahorses diverged about 25 million years ago. Not a lot of seahorse fossils, very tough to find. And, uh, you know, we do have some, our first fossil evidence of seahorses date back about 13 million years ago. And the best fossil we have of a seahorse dates back about 3 million years ago. But again, molecular genetics is showing that they probably started evolving about 25 million years ago. Okay, Angie, without looking first, if you had to guess how big the smallest seahorse is, what would be your guess? 
Mm, maybe as big as like my uh, my pinky fingernail. Okay, it may, okay, that's a good guess. That's a good guess. You're, you're on it today. Thank you. I'm so, a, I'm on fire tonight. <laughs> the pygmy. Sea I had I had my decaf green tea. I'm feeling <laughs> crazy. <laughs> I did send you the picture of this thing. The pygmy seahorse. It's darling. Anywhere from half an inch to an inch long. It is the tiniest thing ever. So there's actually some, there's five species of pygmy seahorse, uh, generally in the Indo-West Pacific is where they live. So that's just north of me, but anywhere from half an inch to an inch long, like they are insane. They are so cute. So I, I had to it. cover them. Uh, we'll have to cover them one day. They are just so tiny. They're like tiny little seahorses. So cute. Okay. Switching gears, talking about, seahorses in general because a lot of this is going to be very very applicable to the cape seahorse we don't know the natural lifespans of of seahorses anywhere from like a year for the pygmy seahorse up to five years for this larger species somewhere in there some seahorses are kept in aquariums so that's that's where we get this data because we don't know in the wild you know you can't really tag them you can't really follow a specific seahorse so i imagine that data is kind of kind of hard uh, to get some fun stuff about seahorses is they are the slowest yeah i know <laughs> but this one i didn't even think about it but they are the slowest swimming fish in the world because as Angie said, they, they have that dorsal fin, they have the little anal fins, and then they use those pectoral fins to steer, which is up near their, their heads, right? So they go, so the dwarf seahorse, so the, one of these pygmy seahorses, swims, its top speed is about one and a half meters or five feet per hour. So per hour, they could go about five feet. That's incredible. Yeah. Very slow. Sloth-like. Slower than sloth. Oh, maybe. yeah. 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 They, they do not. They do not really swim very far. They don't, they're not made to do that. They haven't evolved to do that. So obviously, they can't get away from predators or anything like that unless it's something. But yeah, Chris, their upright position doesn't really allow them to propel themselves through the water the same way that a... Uh, a normal fish would that is more left to right than top to bottom. And I I was uh, reading about their interesting and slow swimming habits. And it said the only other fish that swims vertically, like the seahorse, is the razorfish. And I had to look up the razorfish because that's just what I do. And the razorfish I've seen in aquariums before, the razorfish sw- is top to bottom, but it's it's long and narrow, and its head and mouth are down at the bottom. So another fun fish we'll have to cover. Very very unique. But I've seen them before in uh, in aquariums, and they're 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 very um, silly looking looking for lack of better terms. Oh okay yeah 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 okay I see them now. Oh mm-hmm. wow that's crazy yeah isn't I that fun? Yeah, yeah 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 yeah. So, but because of this, yeah, it makes seahorses really slow swimmers and they don't really swim a lot, right? They're usually found resting and wrapping their prehensile tail around a stationary object, whether it's seagrass or a Q-tip, right? We've all seen that, that sad photo of a, of a seahorse holding on to a piece of ocean trash, right? You, you're right, Angie. I actually saved that picture in my slides at the end to talk about ocean conservation and my, my tip of the week about single-use plastics. It It is one of the more iconic photos to come out in the last couple of years. I, I think some of those and then also that the the masks, the medical masks at the bottom of the ocean is, is another that's been uh, making the rounds. But yeah, that, that iconic photo of a seahorse grasping a, grasping a Q-tip is just heartbreaking. You know, it's very, very powerful. It's very, very powerful. Right. And of course, they use their tails to grasp onto objects, typically seagrass. And often the things they hold onto are stationary, right? Um, Embedded in the seabed floor. But they also are known to be hitchhikers. And so seahorses will grab onto floating vegetation, uh, to move from location to location. Uh, and that's where sadly enough, they will sometimes cling to sea debris because we all know there's 
plenty of it depending on where you live. And so that's why we all need to get the garbage out of the oceans and do our best, our darndest to not put any more in the ocean and stop using single-use plastics and um, all the things we talk about when we cover the oceans. So, uh, so Which again, you know, tip our hat to humanity that, you know, yeah, we're not moving maybe as rapidly as we'd like, but you are seeing a lot of bans on single-use plastics. You know, here in New Zealand, you know, all of our straws, our paper straws. You know, Yes, our, even in Florida. Yeah. Not all of our straws. And places just will not ban plastic bags, but that's a different podcast for a different day. But straws and even uh, cups, I feel like there's a lot more mm-hmm. paper being used. and mm-hmm. And hopefully, as we're moving through this pandemic, we can start – bringing in refill cups of coffee and other things uh, to our different local places so that we don't have to get any type of to-go containers. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely, and I'm seeing it in the news all the time in Europe, a lot of countries, the UK wants to ban single-use plastics, things like that. So now what's interesting too about seahorses is not only are their tails chameleon, like chameleons with the prehensile, but their eyes are also like chameleons that they move independently of each other. So they'll look, you know, they can look in different directions for food, predators, things like that. Well, Kristen, actually keeping up with your chameleon analogy, seahorses are also known to change color, including the Nisna. Most species of seahorse will change their color or parts of their color during mating season. But it can also happen to depend if they're stressed out um, and for other physiological reasons. And seahorses do this by using chromatophores, which are embedded under their skin. And a chromatophore is just a, a fancy word for a cell which contains pigments. And usually up to three or four pigments and colors. And so they have the ability to change color, which is one of the reasons too why they are often a popular uh, species of fish for for aquariums. Uh, Also, they're really beautiful too. And because seahorses typically inhabit mangroves and seagrasses and shallow seas, their coloration patterns aren't always that brilliant. And researchers that have looked into some of these Uh, seahorse coloration change patterns have shown that the intensity of the light and the temperature of the water, the salinity of the water can also influence uh, color changes as well as background colors. So Chris, I just think it's a really cool physiological trick Mm -hmm. that they typically do during mating, but I had no idea uh, about seahorses. I'm sure most aquarists knew that, but uh, I think it's really phenomenal once again. Well, it makes me think we need to do an octopus soon because, you know, how they change so quickly and maybe we can dive more into that again. Gosh, going way back to the blue ring octopus, you know, nerve signals and and how it changes the cells and stuff, but how they do it so rapidly. Well, yes, and it is very rapid during mating. Um, Well, they'll just be brilliant flashes. Uh, So, yeah, it's it's just so cool. Yeah, we have to do or just do another cephalopod. We just have to figure out one of them. Now, one of the things I always like to do with these unique species is look at their physiology and the seahorse physiology internal is just crazy. I was so surprised when I saw this. And one of the things is, you know, because again, you know, we're mammalian physiologists. We're used to, you know, you and I have studied all the organs and. I think I, I think I dorked out about gut physiology and tracks last week or two weeks you did you did it's my (laughs) turn so one of the things that really got me is is you that that seahorse head you know we're going to talk about that snout here in a minute with hunting but their eyes their gills are right behind their eyes so i'm looking at this and to me that's where the brain would be you know in a mammal but in the seahorse that's where their gills are and then their heart is right behind it interesting so i guess that would make sense to you know get that oxygenated blood. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't know. But then they have the swim bladder, which is common in fish. And then they have a very, very, very simple uh, digestive system. Really don't have a stomach. It, it, it just goes straight into the digestive tract. They absorb what nutrients they, they can. 
and then they, you know, kick it out. So very, very simple internal physiology. And some of the things about them, you know, not only having a stomach, they have no teeth. And because it moves so quickly, they have to eat like in an aquarium up to 3000 or more brine shrimp per day because they've got to eat a lot. Now, seahorses in general will feed on like what Angie said in the beginning, talking about the importance, you know, small crustaceans, krill, uh, all of these things that they may eat. And they're really ambush predators. And, and I, and I found Love that, that. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's very interesting. And one of the reasons they develop this long snout is to allow them to almost act like a vacuum cleaner that the, the, the way they, they use their jaw and their snout, it will actually, it's called pivot feeding, but it, it has, they have one of the fastest records of suction feeding of all fishes. So they will identify their prey and then with a quick upward thrust and rotation of their head, they will suck in, vacuum in the, their prey item, little crustacean or something like that, and then close the snout and it goes, and then that will work into their digestive system. And it's actually like, it's three feeding phases and I don't have to really go into it, dork out too much into it, but the preparatory phase, the expansive phase, then the recovery phase. So they prepare, they thrust out with the snout, suck in water with their prey item. Then during the recovery phase, that jaw will lock back in and that's how like they swallow their, their prey into that primitive gut. So very, very interesting how they do it. And then just like Angie said in the beginning, you know, the seahorses are prey for other species. So crabs, fish, other rays will eat them. They've actually recovered uh, seahorses in the stomach of bluefin tuna, which was a fun species that we covered a few months back. So, you know, the, again, critical part of the food web. So while they're eating the small things, like when they, what was it? This the Star Wars, the Star Wars one. There's always a bigger fish. You know, there's always something out there uh, that that will get you. But yeah, it's fun, fun, uh, fun physiology about them. Now I've been dying to get to this, Angie, and that is the reproduction of seahorses because this is father of the year. It has to be. This has to be one of the top fathers that we've covered. Yes, Chris, they are definitely father of the year. They're busting uh, biology norms for sure. Uh, in fact, uh, I had my dear friend uh, and my lab mate, Anna, over, and she's a reproductive biologist and just finishing up her postdoc and studying all things reproduction related. And even her, Chris, I kept blowing her mind with some of these tidbits that I'm going to drop here in a second about the male physiology and as it relates to reproduction. So I don't know if she's going to go home and be looking up (laughs) seahorse reproduction (laughs) papers, but I will give you the cliff notes here. And it's definitely worth the wait because it's, as Chris mentioned, just fascinating. And the general background about seahorse reproduction is that they are somewhat monogamous. Uh, They'll typically stick with a partner for a long period of time. But once again, it depends on the species. And in regards to the Nysna or Cape seahorse, um, I couldn't find out if that they were monogamous or not. But what we do know about the Nysna is that their breeding is going to occur in the summer in the Southern Hemisphere, which is right now. So November through February uh, is when these seahorses are going to start the courtship displays, which is phenomenal. I'll talk about here shortly. And of course, engaging in the just this incredible and biology breaking reproduction that they do. And so the general cliff notes about male seahorse anatomy that most of us probably know is that the male has this brood pouch that's on the front in his belly uh, and near the side of the tail. So when female male seahorse breed, the female will deposit anywhere from one to 2,000 eggs into the male's pouch. 
He carries the eggs, which have been fertilized by his semen externally, and then growing inside him in this pouch for anywhere from nine days to 45 days until the baby seahorses or the fries leave the pouch fully developed and really small. But there's so much more to this physiology, and that's why I fell in love with the seahorse this week. Before all of this starts, and the male starts utilizing his pouch to help carry the tiny fry as they grow, it's their courtship. Chris, their courtship is so elaborate and romantic and well-studied that Mm. we could do probably a whole podcast on it. I'll do a nice condensed version, but we definitely will have to put some videos of it on YouTube. It's just, it's just darling because seahorses are cute to begin with. And then when you see the male and female, these couples just acting out these ritualistic dances, greeting each other, twisting, turning for hours on end, staying together, leaving each other, almost playing games like not today. How about today? Not today. It's just really cute. And I they date. As far as a lot of the species we've covered on this podcast, the seahorse couple really goes on several dates and has a lot of interesting behavior with each other. And it made me kind of want to go back and be a seahorse behaviorist because this would be a little bit more fun than watching horses eat grass, I think. <laughs> I would hope so. I would hope so. It's just crazy. And then while they're doing all these moves and courtship dances and stuff, they'll also change color sometimes. They'll swim side by side, gripping onto each other's tails, reminiscent of maybe holding hands, right? I mean, just so cute. And so to break it down in a little bit more detail, there's actually four phases of courtship and seahorses. And the first phase is just like a first date. They're getting to know each other here. Um, The male's going to brighten his color a little bit. He might move side to side and shake or quiver or vibrate his body. And the female seahorse will probably mimic him a little bit. And then after the first date on phase one, the next day, phase two will get started where the female seahorse will engage in this pointing behavior and and where she'll raise her head to form kind of like an angle with her body so she's not top to bottom. She's pitched forward a little bit and pointing. And the male will sometimes mimic her and point in the other direction. And he'll often do what's known as a pumping behavior where he'll basically pump water into his pouch to make it look bigger and kind of show show the female uh, what he has going on down below. And then after this phase three, if the female likes the male, she'll brighten in color a little bit. She'll do some more pointing. The male will also maybe flash or brighten his color to show that he likes her and do some pointing displays. But phase three will end with the male leaving. So he's a gentleman. He heads on out. <laughs> and finally, for phase four, the male and female will engage in a true courtship dance, last several hours, where they'll do several of the displays, which I've already talked about. And then in the grand finale, the male and female will rise up and down in the water column together slowly, where the female will use her ovipositor, which is a tube like organ to insert or transfer the eggs directly into the male's brood pouch. But Chris, what's so fascinating about this is when the female does transfer the eggs into the male's pouch, they're not fertilized. So while this is happening, the male is releasing his spermatozoa in what in what is basically an external fertilization, which is very common for fish, right? Typically the female deposits her eggs in a, in a bed of seagrass, and then the male uh, will release a spermatozoa over the eggs. So this is happening during the transfer, and the male's pouch is only open for six seconds. Wow. 
So all of that's so, taking place. Yeah. Thousands of eggs, uh, anywhere yeah. from one to 2,000, 2,500, depending on the species. These unfertilized eggs are transferring into the male's uh, pouch while this external fertilization is going on. And researchers think that the salty and hyperosmotic, hyperosmotic environment of the ocean can actually activate the sperm and increase its motility, which, of course, you and I and Anna can dork out on because yeah, we used yeah. to look at that stuff under the microscope. Yeah, all the time. Uh, so, yeah, it's really interesting. It's like an external fertilization with within an internal environment, if that makes sense. Yeah. Bonkers, brood, right? right? Yeah, in the brood pouch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So crazy. But once these fertilized eggs are within the male, a lot of amazing things occur. And this is the part where put your seatbelt on, folks. This is really, this biology is just incredible. And this is what had my friend Anna, who knows a lot, with her jaw open and wanting to yeah. know more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... While the male carries the eggs from 9 to 45 days, depending on the species and how long it takes these seahorses to fully develop, these fertilized eggs in the pouch wall of the male become embedded, and then they get surrounded by a spongy tissue. And this tissue from the male helps give the eggs prolactin, which is an important hormone uh, for milk production in pregnant mammals. I don't know exactly what it does for seahorse uh, mm -hmm. fertilization, and I don't know because I'm not a yeah. yeah I'm not a fish biologist, but that's super cool. But the male also provides oxygen and basically a controlled incubator to these growing seahorses, and. The initial egg, of course, contains a yolk to help nourish the developing embryo, but the male horse helps give other important nutrients such as fat and calcium to allow these tiny fried seahorses to develop their skeletal system. What? Crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. It's like implantation, but not. Yes. But yeah. And then for a male. Study. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And it's, I'm not done yet. Yeah. And then, sorry, I'm so excited. But then, <laughs> but studies have also shown that the male offers the developing embryos gas exchange, waste transport, hello, oh. umbilical cord, mm -hmm. immunological protection, and osmoregulation. It's crazy. Did I mention prolactin, on. right? Yeah, yeah, what? that's crazy. All that stuff's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. just not it's not like a bird sitting on an, an egg to incubate. 100% no. not. Not even no, close. It's way not different. even yeah. close. Just fascinating. And it just goes to show that the biology of animals is incredible. There is not just one way to do it. Uh and it's just mind-blowing. It's so so much fun. I can't think of another – I mean, that – obviously, to me, as a scientist, that is why they're so well-studied and we understand that because that is so ultra-unique. I, I can't think of any other animal system, animal out there. No. So when you think about – The male almost yeah. it binds to this tissue. Mm-hmm. It's almost like implantation, but not quite like we think of it as It's not as vascular and all no, that. No, no, no. I can't think of another male species. This happens all the time in all sorts of different female species. But male species, not in the mammal world, that is for sure. That doesn't happen. But in the bird world, obviously, we have cassowary dads. And there's probably some other bird species where, where dads do a lot of the work. But yeah, this is I can't so think physiologic of one. Yeah, I can't. the physiological changes that we talk about. Me as a pregnant woman, three times yeah. over, I'm just I'm all of a sudden I'm looking at a male seahorse and being like, I see you, <laughs> you know. I mean, <laughs> yeah. what? But I'm not done, Chris. I'm not done. Yeah, okay, so, okay, okay, yeah, okay, okay. Go, go, go. Now it's time to give birth to these fry up to two thousand. I can't even imagine that. So when it is time to release the young seahorses. The male will expel the seahorses with muscular contractions. And all I have to say is you're thinking like, oh, yeah, right, until you watch this on YouTube. And it is mind-blowing because the male seahorse will literally be shooting out, I don't know, 10, 20, 40 little seahorse fry at a time 
with these very full body muscle contractions to get them out of his brood pouch. And uh, once again, as as a birthing woman here, and I've I've birthed all the different styles you can <laughs> yeah. imagine, some with medicine, some with meds on board, some without meds on boards. Uh, so, but it, it reminded me of that, and I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, like this poor this poor seahorse. But because he has to, these contractions last for a while because he has to get out a thousand to two thousand yeah. of these tiny itty bitty uh, seahorse fry. So just. Really, 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 really incredible. But I will say, and I can actually relate to this with a seahorse. Mm-hmm. Once he's done, he's out. <laughs> he <dies. laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> he's like, okay. Um, but that's very similar in the fish world. Uh, most species don't provide any any sort of parenting or mm-hmm. nourishment to their young after they're born, right? Uh, but because of that, about a half percent or 0.5 percent of seahorse uh fry or infants will survive to adulthood which that explains why and the fish in general lay so many eggs and develop so many embryos because not a lot make it but some researchers were pointing out that this half half percent of survival to adulthood is actually higher than in a lot of other species of fish and they think that it's because of they are pretty well developed when they come out of the male's brood pouch and he he's putting in so much energy as, as far as helping them develop. So they have a slightly, slightly better chance than other fish. Yeah, that's the half percent that make it. I know, like, right? And so when you think uh, about yeah. so when you think about the Nisner or the Cape Seahorse uh, with them being endangered. Yes, a lot might be born, but not a lot are going to make it to adulthood. Mm-mm. So, no. and we do know with the Nisna is that they do reach sexual maturity at about a year old. So, I mean, that's good. So they don't, they, they develop pretty quickly over time, but how many of them are actually making it to a year, especially right. with all the, with all the ocean sprawl that's happening in their neck of the woods yeah. or neck of the ocean. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as far as population numbers, the data is old. It, the last great survey was in 2003. And in the Nisna estuary, there was about 62,000 individuals. And then the, the total population across all three estuaries was estimated around 238,000. Now, antitotal reports in 2010 that in the Nisna estuary and the Svartley estuary, that, that they were pretty abundant in those uh, estuaries. But we still don't know 10 years on. This is 20-year-old data. So we just don't know. We don't have a population estimate. But they still are classified as endangered by the IUCN. Now, South African law does protect the Cape Seahorse. So you can't mess with them. You can't collect them. They are protected nationally. So that is good. I mean, that is good. But again, those that development near these estuaries and runoff and houses building all around their boats, uh, you know, water sports, all of that, it does disrupt these seahorses. But there are some captive breeding populations going on across zoos and aquariums around the world to uh, do that. And they are reintroducing some species. But uh, before we get to our, our organization of the week, just again, conservation tip. I'm staring straight at that seahorse picture, grasping a Q-tip. It's a very famous picture. It's very simple this week. Do your best to stop using single-use plastics. When it comes to Q-tips, get the wooden ones. Uh, do your best. I know it's hard. We talk about it all the time. Plastic Free July, we talk about it. But, you know, again... Companies are listening to us. They are changing their packaging. They are changing where they source things like palm oil. They are giving us, you know, uh, getting rid of these single-use plastics and things like that. So, you know, water bottles, stop buying them. Bring your reusable water bottle wherever you go. Things like coffee cups, get a reusable one. Bring it wherever you go. Do your best, do your part, and we're making change. Absolutely, Chris. I always try to vote with my dollar. I just bought renewable bamboo toilet paper uh, 
today. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought I'd give that a, a, a whirl and um, stay tuned. I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> please. Please do. <laughs> do a test. All right. So who's out there supporting these Nizna seahorses? Oh, Chris, I'm so excited today to talk about Project Seahorse. And they can be found at projectseahorse.org. A really wonderful inter- international nonprofit organization. And so Project Seahorse is a marine conservation group dedicated to securing a world in which marine ecosystems are healthy and well-managed. And they do this in several ways by helping establish protected areas, areas, limiting fishing, helping regulate trade, and of course, saving seahorses. So they do that through several research projects, of course, uh, learning more about the Nisna seahorse and the environment that they live and how best to conserve them. But they work on the the threats to seahorses, uh, supporting seahorse relatives, and of course, helping educate the public and, and then establishing partnerships and collaborations because of course, the health of our oceans and our marine life and seahorses is a global issue that needs to be tackled. So you need lots of partners on board, which they're very good at getting those. So we'll put Project Seahorse um, up on our show notes for you to check out, but you can also follow them on all the social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. So give them a like, and I think you will be very happy as your feed will be filled with darling seahorses. They're amazing. They're amazing fish, and I'm glad we covered them. And Skylar, I hope we did them justice. Again, you know, thank you for for sending that. And we scrambled, we scrambled and did it. And and we're doing this one for you. And again, Transgender Week, and all the wonderful friends out there that support our podcast. Thank you. Check us out on Patreon. We we, we appreciate your support there. You know, all the reviews coming in, all the activity on Facebook and elsewhere. Thank you so much for listening. Yes, thank you, everyone. Uh, Share this episode with friends and families over the holidays. And hopefully everybody will learn a little bit more about seahorses and help conserve them. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.